Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Today, we're very ecstatic to have our, on our first guest, Ben Sosmer, a good friend of mine. And he's written Oscar Metrics, a phenomenal book that dives into how one goes about predicting winners during the biggest night in Hollywood and how he's been able to have a near-perfect record doing so. He brings light to many of the surprising predictive tools used and takes a big-picture view as well, devoting a chapter to each Oscar category. He also poses a question in each chapter that launches a discussion and pulls the curtain behind the numbers. He's been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Hollywood Reporter. He graduated from Harvard College in 2015 and majored in applied math, parlaying his talent in numbers and statistics into his career. And recently, Ben is a 2020 World Series champion, having worked the last five years in the baseball operations department for the Los Angeles Dodgers to make the metrics a formula for success on the ball field. And we're super excited to have him on today. Thank you so much for having me for the great introduction. And I'm honored to be the first guest. So before we go into your great book, we'll start. We have to set the stage as in any good story. And so we were kind of wanting to hear about how this whole endeavor, it starts in both your interest and love for math and in movies as well. So how your activities maybe as a kid, how you became to love math and movies. The math part goes back farther than even I can remember. My parents tell me that from the time I was in diapers, I seemed to be a, a more uh, that brain side of the guy, someone who was into stacking the blocks in a mathematical way or whatnot. As far back as I can remember, going back to maybe first or second grade, math was just always my favorite subject. Uh, and then as I got older, that became even more and more true as I realized all the different exciting applications you can do with math. I got into math competitions from the middle school age. I read Moneyball and got into that side of, of baseball from a, a middle school and then high school age. Uh, and so that's just more and more been a subject that I've always found fascinating and so applicable to the world around me. Uh, the movie thing probably comes a bit later. I, I mean, I always like movies as much as the next guy growing up, uh, but it was really the summer after I graduated high school uh, when I had a good chunk of free time in the evenings. And so I would come home each night and watch another movie and another and another. And what I started to work my way through was the American Film Institute's top 100 list and the list of every best picture winner at the Oscars. And one by one, starting to knock those off, got more and more into the Oscars, into the history of film, into some of these classics that I hadn't picked up before. Uh, and that's where that passion really began to grow. So I noticed you said uh, you're a huge fan of baseball, and I think that's obvious with your uh, job. I'm a huge, uh, love, I love playing baseball, um, and I'm a huge fan of the game as well. Um, I'm curious to see, was baseball something you liked playing or just, just for the data side of it? Well, I did like playing. Now, I think we all know there's a big difference between enjoying playing and being any good at it. Uh, I, I was able to hit the ball off the tee uh, around third grade. They switched over to, to coaches and then players pitching, and things seemed to get a little bit harder. Uh, but I played Little League all the way through uh, through 11th grade uh, and had a blast doing it. I loved going to every practice and game. Uh, and, and that was as far as my baseball career on the field topped out. So how did your kind of interest going back to math kind of like manifest themselves in high school? Were you just reading uh, more textbooks? Were you doing math competitions? Did you get into the world of statistics as, at all uh, as a kid? Or, or like what were kind of the activities that you're doing that correlated with that, that math uh, initiative? A lot of math competitions for sure. I, I got very into math counts at middle school. Uh, Armel, the American Regions Math League in high school, uh, poured lots of time driving back and forth to Lehigh University every Sunday to 
uh, to do practices there with the team that I was a part of. So that was a, a big, big activity for me in those years. Uh, on the statistics side, that really wasn't something that I got into until college. It was part of this Oscars project where freshman year of college, I decided to start predicting the Oscars, which uh, I imagine we'll get into. And, uh, and with that, I sort of needed to start to learn some of these mathematical tools uh, under this umbrella called statistics that I knew very little about uh, in order to be able to do that project. And that's when I got really into that side of things, which worked out really nicely with my interest in baseball. Statistics is obviously a huge part of that as well. Uh, and so that I was really able to pick up starting around age 18 or 19. Yeah. So on that note, we were wondering when you had this idea and you decided and you saw no one had done it before, did you already know like how you wanted to collect the data, what data you needed, how to organize it and use it to make predictions from like the classes you were taking? Or was that a completely new endeavor that you kind of had to learn, but you were so passionate about it that it motivated you to figure it out? I knew none of it. I mean, when I first thought of this idea of predicting the Oscars with math, right, like you were saying, the first thing I did was I just went to Google to see if someone had already done it. I just wanted to know who was going to win that year uh, in the 2011 Oscars. Uh, and I couldn't find anyone who'd done it. And so, right, the next thing, the first thing you do as a statistician is you go and you look for data. So I just Googled to try to find some perfect, complete Oscar data set, uh, sort of the equivalent of like a baseballreference.com does for baseball. Uh, and I couldn't find anything. So it turned out that the bulk of the project was not even anything on the statistical side. It was just data gathering, going you know, one year by one movie, by one category at a time, sometimes like hunting through individual PDFs of old press releases just to get a single data point uh, and slowly but surely spending a good chunk of January that year, right before the Oscars. Uh, trying to build this data set so that I even had anything to build predictions on. Uh, and then the rest I threw together very quickly because the Oscars were fast approaching. It was time to build some simple models and get some things up on a website. And the project sort of grown from there. So why do you think uh, no one had really gone into the world of Oscars and using like the money ball tactic to predict them? Do you think it was just the lack of data or maybe it was just something that hadn't been done before altogether? It's, it's a great question. Uh, could definitely be due to the lack of data. I could easily imagine this being a, a more widespread thing if you did have incredible data resources out there for the Oscars. Uh, part of it is also that it, it is almost by its nature more of a hobby. Uh, there are people that can make professions out of predicting various other things, uh, whether it's folks like me who work in an industry uh, or you know, some people choose to, to gamble on certain things, things like that. Uh, in politics, it's very useful because it can help inform campaigns of the best strategy. Uh, with the Oscars, there's less of that. Uh, it's only once a year, so it's not going to be something that somebody makes their living on by betting. Uh, and while it's important for studios to try to win Oscars to promote their movies, being able to guess who's going to win the Oscar with just a week to go tends to be a much less useful endeavor for them. Uh, and so I think because of that, because it's the domain of people like me where it's just a passion project. It's probably less likely something that someone had already done. Uh, but it's a great question. I hadn't thought of that, why it wasn't already a thing out there on the internet. And I guess I just lucked out. And then what would you say, you were saying how like the Oscars, no one had done it before. What do you think are the main differences between the two when it comes to predictions and statistics between the Oscars and maybe sports or other fields that it's used in? There are a lot of differences from a purely statistical standpoint. I would say the biggest difference is simply in the size of the data set. 
I mean, when we're talking about baseball, for instance, uh, you know, now there's all these things like, uh, you know, first it was Sport Vision and then TrackMan and now StatCast, where it, it, I think it's fair to say that we have more data on a single pitch in baseball uh, than we have on all of the Oscars for a given year. Uh, and so uh, both of those things in my mind come with challenges uh, from a mathematical side. When you have a ton of data, the goal is trying to sift through all the noise and all the stuff that doesn't really matter and drill down just to the things that can help you make a prediction. But then when you have too little data, which the Oscars often run into, you're trying to avoid overfitting, trying to avoid coming up with these really broad, impressive conclusions based on so little data that you're actually not building a very good model for predicting the future. So both come with their challenges. Uh, and to me, that's why both are fun. So I know when you make predictions, you can kind of put percentages on things about their percentage to win. And I was wondering, like, between baseball and the Oscars, how, or in sports, since there's so much more data, can you get the prediction to be, or can you trust the prediction a lot more in baseball than in the Oscars? That's a great question. Uh, I think, uh, I have a twofold answer. I think when we come up with a prediction in baseball, when we say such and such has a 65% chance to win, I think that it probably really does have somewhere between a 63 and a 67% chance to win just due to a lack of data or modeling error. Uh, and so in that sense, our predictions in baseball, are, I think, are much more accurate than in something with much less data like the Oscars. But the other way of asking that question is, can we be more competent? Can we get numbers that are higher, that are 80% competent, 90% competent? Uh, and in many instances, the Oscars actually give us more competence than baseball. And that's just due to the nature of the game. Uh, it's not that we have more data in basketball than baseball, but you can make better win predictions in basketball because it's a less noisy sport. The better team simply tends to win more often than they do in baseball. And in baseball, they tend to win more often than they do in hockey. Uh, and that leads to more upsets and more excitement. And that's all well and good. But some things just by their very nature can be harder to predict because there's more noise and more randomness. Speaking of things that are hard to predict, we were wondering... What is the, do you think, the most difficult category to predict in the Oscars and why? And maybe what is the easiest category to predict? So the, the specific answer to that uh, can change year to year because a lot of what I do is taking a lot of the prior award shows and other indicators and trying to figure out the best weights for them. And so if all of these other award shows for best actress line up behind the same nominee one after another after another but then for best supporting actress they all disagree and pick a different nominee that year best supporting actress is just going to be a lot harder uh, and then the next year it could be the opposite but to give a more general answer to that question more often than not it's the down ballot categories that are harder and that's simply because there's less data there's a whole lot of awards out there that are making predictions for best picture for the acting categories director screenplay there's not quite as many that lead up to best production design or cinematography. Sound mixing and sound editing are particularly strange. They were separated, even though most others had them combined, and now the Oscars are looking to combine them. And so that leads to a whole set of issues with predicting them. So more often than not, it's the less exciting, less notable, more of the craft categories that tend to prove toughest to predict. In the future, uh, do you see the movie industry tailoring their films to maximize their chances at winning awards using the find if you've come to. You know, you talk about like how uh, almost baseball, predicting in baseball and statisticians have become a huge, they have a huge job now, right? Especially after Moneyball. Uh, do you think that maybe will start to happen in the world of Oscars and in the world of, of, of movie making? Is that something that you can kind of see in the future or is it too far-fetched? 
It's a great question. Uh, I think to some degree from a less mathematical perspective, uh, we've been seeing that for years. Every time that you read a review of something and you see it called Oscar bait, uh, that's the, a phrase they love to use. Uh, th that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the sort of movie that just sort of on a gut level feels like it's a formulaic vehicle to try to win Oscars. Uh, a lot of times people use that in a very cynical context, uh, which isn't totally fair. Sometimes a movie can win Oscars and also it has mass appeal and is a terrific film. Other times it feels like they're just trying to pull at the heartstrings of a very specific group of voters who tend to vote a certain way. Uh, and sometimes those movies do well and sometimes they fall flat on their face and they don't win any Oscars. And uh, I, I think because of that latter part, that's why it's so much harder to see a future where computers and AI just tell a studio exactly which movies to make and not make because there's so much less math and so much more art that goes into the subjective analysis of a film. You could have two films with a very similar premise that a computer might say are similarly well poised to win Oscars, but one of them with the director and the screenwriter and the actors they hire is just at such a higher level that to the human eye with our subjective abilities is clearly the superior film, even if a computer maybe can't distinguish between the two. This is sort of in the same lane as that question, but um, as it's applied to baseball, um, I know as a fan over the last few years, we've seen sort of like the incredible rise, but you're sort of th throughout the, uh, the recent history of baseball of data being used. Um, and I know a lot of times that shows itself um, in, you know, uh, what fans would perceive to be uh, poor decision making or sometimes great decision making. But, you know, sometimes what I remember most vividly or since it's so recent um, is Kevin Cash in the World Series pulling Blake Snell. Um, and obviously, I don't know any of the data behind it. But um, from purely a fan standpoint, uh, that those are some sometimes decisions that are uh, very tough to swallow. Do you think that um, the same principle applies to baseball, that um, there are sometimes shortcomings of data um, and sometimes when managers um, and sort of like the feel that everyone talks about really comes into play and is necessary? Oh, for sure. And there's a reason why all 30 teams employ managers and none of those managers are statistics PhDs. Uh, that, that there's still an enormous amount of value in being able to have that gut feel. Uh, when you talk to a pitcher, he's coming off the mound, he's thrown five innings, and you say to him, you know, how are you feeling? Or you've been watching him and you see how he's responding to what the batters are doing, how the interplay is working with the catcher, how, what kind of a feel he seems to have for his pitches. Those are things that uh, the human eye, especially someone like a baseball manager who's spent decades around the game, who's an expert in these kind of things, the human eye can just pick that stuff up better than data can. Uh, now in baseball, unlike perhaps in making a movie, I still think there's a huge amount of room for data to make very meaningful contributions uh, because there are, on the other hand, some things that data can be better at picking up. Data can look at season-wide trends for every player in the league in a way that no human could because no human has the time to watch every single pitch from every player in the majors and minors. Uh, so there's room for both. Uh, it's why we have managers, but it's also why teams uh, employ folks with more of the mathematical background who can then provide information to those managers that can help them make the best possible decisions. So uh, I think the best teams try to do some of everything. And sometimes that results in s decisions that fans do or don't like. Uh, and sometimes the reasons they like those decisions, it's because the math chose it. And sometimes it's actually not. Sometimes it's a decision that went against the math and that's what the manager decided, and, and that's part of the game, too. So now that we've been talking about baseball, we 
have to congratulate you on the 2020 World Series. It must feel great to be an important contributor to the Dodgers of a great season. Well, thank you. I, I mean, there, there's a whole lot of us that are part of that, but it, it, there's no doubt it does feel great. It, it, we've been coming closer and closer each year, it feels, and finally we were able to get over the hump with a really fantastic roster, great group of guys, and uh, it, it's awesome. And I was wondering, in retrospect, where do you think baseball analytics and your work and your colleagues' work has been instrumental in success on the baseball field? It's a great question. Uh, when you look at the roster, you see so many different guys on there. You know, not just the the top few superstars, but top to bottom, the whole forty uh, man roster, everybody that contributed this year. Uh, and, and with each one of those guys, you see the contributions of so many different people in the organization. Uh, some with more of a mathematical background, like myself. Uh, some with more of a baseball background, like all of our scouts and our minor league coaches and coordinators and major league coaches and uh and so it sort of is hard to piece apart one from the other in some instances you know you take a look at uh at a guy like max muncie who was our cleanup hitter for much of the playoff run uh and you've got the uh both the scouts and the mathematical side that were in agreement upon you know finding this guy and bring him into the organization uh, and then you've got all of the coaches that worked with him and helped him improve and got him to the point that he was there as our cleanup hitter. Uh, and so it's very hard to, to piece apart, to pull apart, you know, how much of the contribution came from the math side, how much of the contribution came from everyone else. Uh, and it's probably different on different players. Uh, some players, it really requires a full team effort. Some players, you know, you take a Mookie Betts. Nobody's disputing that Mookie Betts is an enormously talented player. And then it just becomes a question of, can we make the trade for him that Boston will accept? And then can we sign him to the extension? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, as, as a baseball fan, like, uh, you know, hear, hearing those guys' names and um, understanding sort of like the backgrounds behind them is super interesting. Um, what sort of this, um, what this all reminds me of, or this sort of way of collecting a bunch of data and then um, really understanding it um, is... It, it takes us back, I think, to one of the books we read, the first book we read, which was Ray Dalio's Principles and Understanding the Cause and Effect Relationship, and then how data can help you understand um, that. Um, sort of t moving into another book that we've recently read, um, uh, you've all know Harari's uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. I'm curious to see um, if you've thought that book talks about AI a lot and about the future, um, about sort of if you've been interested at all in AI and um, how data can sort of play into that. It's definitely a thing that, uh, at least on the baseball front, I think some teams ha have tossed around to, to a certain degree. I think uh, on the Hollywood front, I have read some articles as well of some companies that have started to promote themselves as, you know, trying to build AI to tell studios what to uh, produce and which films are most likely to be successful. I think that things like AI, at least for now, at the stage that we're at right now, are more likely to have success in things that are closer to pure data realms. Uh, things that require a little bit less on the domain knowledge side, like making a movie, uh, and a little bit more purely a data problem. Uh, because computers computers are very smart and they're, they have at this point a remarkable ability to handle vast amounts of data and discern patterns where a human might not be able to find them. And in a nutshell, that's what AI is trying to do. Uh, and, and earlier generations of computer technology can find patterns only where humans ask, is there a pattern there? Whereas AI, it's a little bit more about uh, a self-reinforcing teaching method where a computer can start to 
discern those patterns themselves, but they can only know to look for types of patterns that are data-driven. That's what AI feeds on. It's all about data and things that require both data and domain knowledge, I think probably are still not quite at the level where AI can simply you know, take over Terminator style. Uh, you make a really uh, insightful uh, distinction in your book where you say, um, you know, I'm not here to predict which movie is the best uh, because, you know, people get upset about that. It's a little more controversial. You're here to discuss how a group of people will behave that decide, uh, you know, the Oscars and who's going to be the winners. Um, I I'm curious, in this kind of approach where you're trying to predict human behavior, has there been any psychological fallacies that maybe you see people falling into that, that affects their decision when it comes to voting on the Oscars or or any of the cognitive biases? Has it, have you taken a look at any of these or have these played any of a role in baseball or in, uh, in the Oscars? So on, on the Oscar side, the way I see it is if there are any fallacies, almost by definition, they have to be mine. Uh, and the reason I say this is my job is not to model, like you were saying, what they should do. And so if they are biased by any reason whatsoever, it's my job to predict that as well as possible. They are almost definitionally correct. I don't mean correct in the sense that they always choose the best movie. I, I mean, no, no one here is going to say that Citizen Kane should have lost Best Picture. Saving Private Ryan is another great example. That, you know, it, it's not that they always pick the best movie that will stand the test of time. Uh, it's that they're correct in the sense that I'm trying to predict what they will do. So whatever they're eventually going to do, that's what I need to predict, not what they should have done or anything of that nature. Now, there's a separate question here, which is a bigger question, a very important question for Hollywood and for the Academy, which is, do they have biases towards certain types of movies? Are the voters more skewed in some way where they're gonna be unfair towards movies from a certain background, from certain types of directors, certain types of filmmakers? Uh, and that that's a very important set of questions. The answer is almost definitely yes, because all humans have some amount of biases in the way we approach things, but especially in the way we approach subjective things, like voting on the best movie or the best performance, for instance. Uh, that's something that the Academy has been working really hard to try to rectify by trying to make the membership, the people that get to vote, a little bit more representative of the country as a whole. Now, that's a hard process. Uh, it's something that has taken them a number of years now, and they're getting closer and closer to that. And then we'll, as uh, folks on the data side, have to wait even longer to see if that actually has the effect that they're anticipating. Will that new group of voters actually vote in a way that the Academy anticipates? It's gonna be a really hard question. And the reason is they don't release the individual votes. So we'll know how the Academy votes as a whole, but what we're never gonna know unless they change their policy on releasing votes is did certain types of voters vote for certain types of films and other types of voters vote for other types of films? Uh, at the moment, that's an impossible question. Speaking of subjectivity and like, of course, everyone likes different types of movies and has different tastes. I was wondering if how like your in-depth insight on movie statistics and all your knowledge, all the data you've gathered and what you've concluded in your book has changed the way you watch movies and maybe things you appreciate while watching movies. Wow, that's a great question. Uh, probably the answer is yes, and I can't help it, uh, especially at a certain time of year, a time of year that we are rapidly approaching, that normally we would already be well into if it weren't for a bit of a delay due to the pandemic. Uh, when I'm watching a, a, a blockbuster type film that comes out in June, I'm not necessarily thinking about it in terms of Oscars or anything like that. I'm there to enjoy the movie, but I, I can't help it. When I'm watching a movie in November, December, or maybe this year, let's call that January, February, 
of course I'm thinking in terms of, well, if I were a voter, what would I vote for? Do I think this has a shot in this type of thing? And because of that, because I naturally as a movie fan have those inclinations, I'm always very careful to try to figure out what I wanna do with the model, what improvements I wanna make well in advance of the Oscar season, because my whole goal is never to bias the model towards picking specific movies that I like or that I thought would win. That's not what I'm here for, that there are other really great writers out there that do that, that do watch the movies and come at it from that perspective. That's not my shtick. My goal is to uh, use purely data and nothing else, not my own opinions to predict the Oscars. So yeah, of course I'm watching movies. I'm a fan, I'm an Oscar fan, but I try to keep it separate from the math I do. I think we have to ask you what your favorite movie is. Uh, for me, my favorite movie is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, 1939, Jimmy Stewart, Frank Capra is the director. Highly recommend it. Inspiring story, uh, especially in a, a very uh, tense political era, an era where uh, a lot of folks tend to lose faith in democracy. There is no better film to restore faith in the ability of one person to uh, set a country back on track than Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's it's admittedly a somewhat obscure choice. I don't hear it that often as a favorite film, but if you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. And I was wondering, we were talking about how um, your perspective change if it does, if your knowledge in movie statistics change how you view um, movies. I was wondering if there's any interesting analytics in sports or in baseball that you can impart to sports fans who aren't experts, but that will help us appreciate the sport while watching. Interesting. What's the like, I'm trying to think, what's like the biggest difference in how I watch baseball? Is that more or less, you know, where the questions like, uh, yeah, how is an yeah. Analyst? So I think for me, one thing that uh, just really never dawned on me at all as a, a casual fan, and then once I started working in the game, became more and more clear is. Uh, just how noisy batted ball outcomes can be. And this is a thing that's been in the statistical research for a good 15 years now, uh, but still probably hasn't spread as widely among the more casual baseball watching fan, uh, which is that when you see a, a relief pitcher give up a single or when you see a batter hit the ball and slice the gap in the outfield, uh, it's amazing what percentage of that is luck versus skill. Uh, that the ability to hit a home run is much more indicative of skill, especially on the batter's part, but also a lack on the pitcher's part. Uh, but the ability, once you put the ball in play, for a fielder to make the out versus the batter to find a hole and get on base, intuitively we watch the game and we think that guy put it up the middle, he hit it where they ain't, he sliced the gap. You know, we use all these phrases to describe the hitter successfully putting the ball onto the ground and. Uh, the math says many more times often than not, not a fat, hard and fast rule, but uh, a lot of that's luck, uh, especially when it comes to the pitcher. The pitcher has surprisingly little control over this. This is not news to people who have been following fan graphs and websites like that for many years. But uh, I think for fans that are just watching the game on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, it is surprising when they learn, you know, just how much of that is luck that we as people trying to predict the game need to strip out in order to figure out a pitcher or a hitter's true talent. Um, so, so sort of on that note, um, this, this question is going to be sort of uh, out of left field, but uh, it's one that I really wanted to ask. Yeah. yeah. Um, so going, going back to, I think you, we've hit on it before, but um, this uh, sort of like the feel that, that, um, that hum whether it's in baseball, the feel that a manager needs to have or the feel that a, a movie voter needs to have when voting on an Oscar. Um, 
one of the questions we've been tackling over these last few books, and obviously this is going to be much more um, philosophical, um, but especially when uh, reading 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, is in this world of big data where everything is being tracked and where you know Facebook um, and all these big tech companies are tracking everything about us and know so much about us, is there going to be a time when we can really truly be replicated or understood fully by data? Or is there something innate that um, is will never actually be able to be fully understood some feel randomness that um data will never be able to uh predict boy that that's maybe the biggest question of all that that's getting uh well above the pay grade of just predicting the oscars or baseball uh i would like to believe the answer is no that human beings could never be purely replicated by data uh, now, probably if I've been alive 100 years ago, there's a whole lot I would have said computers will never be able to do that, lo and behold, they were in fact able to do over the next century. But I still believe you can call it uh, creativity, you can call it a spark, you can call it a soul, you can call it randomness, you can call it, you know, if, if you're more on the religious side, you can call it the divine, but, but whatever it is. I, I'd like to believe that there is something about human beings that cannot purely be mapped into zeros and ones, even if that's how the brain on an individual neuron level does fire, a neuron fires or it doesn't, and it fires in patterns, and that's no different than how a computer a memory chip is storing zeros and ones, that something about it feels greater than the sum of its parts in a way that does not feel true for a computer. Uh, but it's, you know, only 2020 and that means that we're only a good half century into this computer age uh, and that's just a, a blink of an eye on the clock and so who's to say what a computer can do in 100 or 200 or 300 years uh, it's not something that uh, by 300 years from now any of us are going to live to get to see unless of course uh, it is through computers uh, but no I don't see the matrix as being a, a documentary of the future so Talking about the technological revolution in, in data science and all, um, and your part in it, obviously you have like a dream job, I think, um, to many, like being, uh, Andrew's always telling me when you're at the World Series, like, you know, you're, you're right there for every game or, or it's just like a, an amazing experience. Is, uh, and so, so I think it, it's, it's honestly a dream job. Um, my question is, do you see any other fields that, that kind of spark your interest? Um, maybe uh, beyond movies or baseball, is there anything else that has really intrigued you recently um, or not? Uh, just an open-ended question. It's a great question. Certainly uh, pl plenty of other things uh, for me that rise to the level of hobbies, things I get really into, things that, that I really enjoy. My, uh, my girlfriend and I just started a virtual dreidel website because it's a pandemic and people should still be able to play dreidel on Kanika. But uh, no, that in terms of jobs, uh, like you said, I, I feel extremely fortunate to have the job that I have. And uh, at this point in my career, I, I'm still loving every day of it. And uh, while there are other things I might enjoy outside of work, this is something I feel very lucky to get to do on a day to day basis. I think for a final question, we are a book podcast and we were wondering if there's any books that have had a big impact on you or you think we should read. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think in uh, in a similar vein of the Oscar metrics type thing, but more along the lines of the like uh, bigger picture of like how to think about statistics for a lay audience in a way that is fun and uses real world examples and 
successfully sort of separates the things that are predictive and the things that aren't. Uh, this one I'm sure has come across many desks already, but uh, The Signal and the Noise by Nate Silver, a guy that I generally really admire uh, from his, uh, you know, starting in baseball predictions, but especially now with what he does on the political side, which is really a thankless job, something he gets constantly criticized for, but I think uh, from a statistical perspective does a very fine job with it. Uh, highly recommend his book, uh, and I think that that's definitely another good one to consider. That sounds great, and definitely along the lines of what we like to read. And with that, we'll conclude the podcast episode, and it's been a delight to talk with Ben, and we urge you to pick up his great book, and thank you for listening.